A very good morning. I found a nice prayer this morning. So as I say it, let's bow our heads. Now, O oh Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for yourself, Lord Jesus. Amen. I am amazed that I'm preparing to speak on the parable of the tenants in the context of a surprise attack on the state of Israel, which is again fighting for survival. Uh, so I'll ask a favor of you, if there is anything I say here this morning that could possibly be construed as a lack of sympathy or a lack of spiritual hope for the modern state of Israel, uh, please talk to me after the, the service. Privately, I hold to a very positive theology of Israel. Now, that being said, at, at the best of times, the parable of the tenants is a scary parable to preach on. So it seemed to me that my best bet would be to offer an expanded and dramatized rendition of the parable. Therefore, we start with once upon a time. The one known as the Lord God of hosts brought a people out of Egypt, and this people he called the house of Israel. And God drove out the nations to plant Israel in the land of Canaan. How lovingly God provided for the house of Israel. He was like a master of a house who plants a vineyard on a very fertile hill, digs it and clears it of stones, plants it with choice vines, builds a watchtower in the midst of it, and hews out a wine vat in it. And how zealously God protected his vineyard. He put a fence around it, a hedge that it should not be devoured, a wall that it should not be trampled down, and he gave it vine dressers to do the pruning and hoeing so that briars and thorns would be kept in check. God even commanded the clouds that they should rain upon it, and the vineyard prospered. Indeed, it took deep root and filled the land, covering the mountains with its branches and sending out its shoots all the way to the great sea. God's vineyard, the house of Israel, was invited to be a witness of the true God to the world. Moses, who was, if you wish, the chief vine dresser, he explained it this way. He says, see, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, they will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I said before you today? In due time, God himself spoke to the house of Israel from Mount Sinai.
Look, if we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. So, Moses, you go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say, and you speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you, and we will hear and do it. And the Lord God said to Moses, the people are right in all that they have spoken. If only they had such a heart in them to fear me and keep all my commandments always. Moses was succeeded by Joshua. And this is what Joshua had to say to the house of Israel. Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, far be it from, uh, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord God drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves, that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. The Lord, our God, we will serve. And his voice, we will obey. But then a strange thing happened. The Lord looked for his vineyard to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. He looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Why? The Lord exclaimed, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? So the Lord sent his servants, the prophets, with words like these, you brood of vipers, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham, for Abraham. But when the leaders of the house of Israel heard these things, they were filled with wrath. They rose up and beat one prophet, killed another and stoned another. And the Lord sent other prophets more than the first, but they did the same to them. Finally, the Lord sent his own beloved son, saying, they should respect my son, but truly they will throw him out and kill him. Yet, out of this unspeakable evil will come salvation for all mankind. And this beloved son, walked our earth as Jesus of Nazareth, and Jesus chose 12 disciples, chief of which was Simon, who is called Peter. 
Peter and his brother Andrew were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. But Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. On the eve of his death, Jesus said to his disciples, you will all fall away because of me this night. But Peter answered, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus answered, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both in prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you even know me. And this Peter did, and the rooster crowed, and Jesus turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Scenes from the past flashed before Peter's eyes. Just a few days ago, Jesus had told a parable of the two sons, the one who said, I will not, and the one who said, I go, sir. And it dawned on Peter that he was that second son, the one who said, I go, sir, but afterward changed his mind and did not go. And it also dawned on him that although he had left everything behind to be an apprentice of Jesus for three and a half years of his life, he remained very much a representative of the ancient house of Israel and its leaders. Those very leaders who so confidently proclaimed, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord. How right was Joshua when he said, you are not able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. As prophesied, Jesus died, Jesus was resurrected, and Jesus appeared to many. He appeared to Mary Magdalene, he appeared to the disciples minus Thomas, and finally he appeared to Thomas. And pressed with the facts of Jesus' resurrected life, they all believed, but they don't appear to have become new creatures. Let's give this man a hand. <laughs> so one day, Simon Peter and five other disciples, they were together by the Sea of Tiberias. And you know, Simon Peter, always the leader, he said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. He was a good leader. They went out and got into the boat, 
But that night they caught nothing. And maybe there was a message in that. So that same day, Jesus spoke to Simon Peter. He asked him three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved. And he said to Jesus, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Notice that in some ways, this was a different Peter. The bravado was gone. Peter now understood the words of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane when he said, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So put simply, Peter had been humbled. And Jesus said to Peter, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And finally, follow me. Then Peter turned and he saw the apostle John and he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, what is that to you? You follow me. And then Peter remembered Jesus' words at the very beginning. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Peter had been going after the wrong kind of fish. He was called to God's pasture. Jesus had said, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, chief priests and Pharisees, and it will be given to a people producing its fruits, the fruits of the kingdom of God. Now the time had come for those words to be realized, and Peter was supposed to lead the charge. Peter is the one who was going to write these famous words. You, the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you, the church, might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. But for now, Peter's enthusiasm was underwhelming. What good could come out of him, Peter? this wasted old covenant relic that he was. And how would his friends fare any better? Those friends who likewise abandoned their master on the night of his suffering. So one day Jesus appeared out of nowhere among the disciples and he asked, why are you guys troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? He tried in various ways to convince them that he was for real. And he said, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And he says, you are witnesses of these things. In the Gospel of John, we hear an interesting detail. God didn't just open the door and walk through like a normal person. Why? because the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. And Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Are you freaking kidding me? Troubled and doubting disciples, locked up in a house, 
are going to be sent out to all nations as witnesses to Jesus. And not only that, they're supposed to be at peace about it. In the Gospel of Matthew, it says that the disciples went to Galilee to see Jesus and they worshiped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Okay, same thing in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus appeared to the disciples. He actually rebuked them for their unbelief. And then he said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Hmm. You cannot be serious asking a bunch of doubting disciples to take on the whole world in Jesus' name. Did Jesus know what he was doing? Well, of course he did, and here's what. He told the disciples, no, he ordered the disciples not to depart from Jerusalem. He said, wait for the promise of the Father, which you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You will be clothed with power from on high when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this ends my expanded and dramatized rendition of the parable of the tenants. So what is the takeaway for us? What do we do with all that? I am intrigued by the Lord's question. He asked, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? And I always thought that the no-brain no answer was, well, nothing. The Lord did all that there was to do. But what if it wasn't just a, a rhetorical question? What if the question was designed to tease out a more nuanced answer? Uh, what if the correct answer is, yes, the Lord did all that could be done for ancient Israel at the time? and that he is able to do so much more for the church in this gospel age, thanks to the Jesus of Nazareth event. What if this is literally the good news that we are to proclaim? Here are some examples. How about Jesus, the Lamb of God who was sacrificed for the forgiveness of our sins? So this the Israelites did not have. Instead, they had animal sacrifices, which were a reminder of their guilt and of their need for atonement but these sacrifices had to be continually renewed every year because and i quote from hebrews it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins okay how about jesus now who was resurrected thus bringing the resurrection of the dead into the world and subjecting death itself to a humiliating defeat well this the israelites did not have and they lived in the fear of death how about Jesus who ascended to his father and sat at his right hand, inheriting all things and all authority, and now waiting for his day when he is to be revealed to the world as king of king and lord of lords. This the Israelites did not have. And they had to set their hopes on the earthly kings that they had. In other words, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. But do you know that one can have all of that 
and still be an Old Covenant Christian in an Old Covenant church. I find it fascinating that we're missing a crucial fourth step here. How did we miss it? What happened after Jesus ascended to his Father? And here's a clue, straight from John. Jesus said, <clears throat> Jesus said it was to his disciples' advantage that he ascend to his Father. For if he did not go away, the Helper would not come to them. But if he went, he would send the Helper to them. And that too is something that Jesus did. It is part of Jesus' works on our behalf. What if this sending of the Holy Spirit was the essential fourth act that wraps up this entire package of grace that we call the New Covenant? The Holy Spirit does many things. The Spirit convicts us concerning sin and righteousness. And that's important. If we're not convicted of sin, how are we going to claim the forgiveness that comes from Jesus? How about resurrection? Listen to Paul. Paul said, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, while he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. But here's the killer. What if we can only produce the fruit of the kingdom of God? In other words, what if we can only be that new nation, the church of the new covenant? What if we can only do that through the Holy Spirit? Isn't that what Pentecost teaches us? Those fearful disciples, well, they unlocked their doors. They walked out into the street and they took on the world. Truly, the Spirit is an integral part of our identity as the church of God. And without spirit-born fruitfulness, there is no church to speak of. So as, as the importance of the Spirit impressed itself on me these recent years, I developed a habit. I developed a habit of starting each new day with a request for the Holy Spirit to be poured into my heart and to infuse meaning into this new day of mine. And if I forget on occasion, well, God is, no, is not so fickle that he will take his Holy Spirit away from me. However, I believe that the Spirit can be, well, I know the Spirit can be grieved. The Spirit can be quenched, but it can also be fanned into a flame. At Asbury College, you know the site of the recent renewal in Kentucky, there is a Malaysian teacher who sometimes walked the streets with a, a cardboard sign around his neck. And the sign said, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Which leads to the, the simple question, is the Holy Spirit welcome at Emmaus? And on this, let us pray. Dear Father and dear big brother Jesus and dear Holy Spirit, thank you again for your word and all that it teaches us and reveals us. And I pray that these words would not be lost on us today, that we would realize that we owe our understanding of ourselves 
and our reality at the church, as the church of God, to Holy Spirit sent by Jesus himself. I pray, Father, that you would pour the Spirit on us and change us and make us new creatures and make us your sons and daughters indeed. I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.